This morning's reading is Psalm 73. Psalm 73 can be found on page 590. Page 590, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Marion. Uh, if you've got a, a Bible, bi bi Bible open in front of you, please do keep it open. Thank you. And uh, let us pray. Father God, how good it is to have Bibles with the Psalms in it. What a, what a treasure we have. Lord, we, we, we're so grateful that you've given us this whole book in the middle of the Bible that's all about prayer, that shows us how we can pray no matter what the weather. So Lord, would you teach us to pray this morning? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So all through uh, this autumn term, uh, beginning in September all the way through until Advent, we are looking at the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is the, is the prayer book at the middle of the Bible, and it gives us a language for our own praying. And this book right in the middle of the Bible is such a very, very precious gift to us. What makes the Psalms so precious is that they not only show us more about who God is, but they show us of how we can relate to God in just about any season of life, in joy and in sorrow, in gratitude and in disappointment, in trust and in doubt. To put it differently, the, the Psalms are given to us to shape both our thinking and our feeling. Why did God give us a Bible with 150 Psalms in it? Because he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to be able to pray with him whatever the season of our lives. Can we just take a moment just to reflect on how amazing that is? that our God wants to be in relationships with us so much that he's given us 150 different psalms to help us in our own prayers. He is amazing. And today we come to Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph is identified with 12 psalms uh, in the Bible. We don't know an awful lot about him, but we do know that Asaph was a songwriter, a singer, a scribe, and a seer. Apparently, he only did things beginning with S. He was one of David's three appointed worship leaders and was a key figure in the musical life of Solomon's temple. We don't know uh, this psalm's background, but here's my attempt to try and summarize 28 verses in a few sentences. Sometimes I wonder if being a believer is really worth it. I look enviously at the lives of non-believers. They seem to have it so, so easy. And following you is often very costly. But how stupid I am. I realize my mistake. Because believers get you. And you're more valuable than all the riches in the world. That's my attempt to summarize Psalm 20, 73, who says I can't be concise. <laughs> Psalm 73 
is all about doubt. Asaph begins by affirming God's goodness. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So far, so good, right? But this affirmation of God's goodness is hard won. Because no sooner have you read that than you come to verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's just stop there for a moment. What's going on? Here's what I think is going on. Asaph knows the right answer. God is good. That statement is doctrinally correct. Full marks in terms of theology. Good. God is good. Yes. He's been taught it. He knows it in his head. But to believe it in the heart when the battle is raging, that's what's going on here. He looks around him and sometimes he seems what seems to suggest in the world around us, is God good really? Look around. Doesn't look like God's good. There's a disconnect between his head and his heart, and he needs to experience God's goodness. One Sunday morning, a minister of a small church gave a talk to the children in the Sunday school. Now, for the sake of the illustration, he started his talk by describing a squirrel. I'm going to describe something, and I want you to raise your hand when you know what it is, he said to them. And the children nodded eagerly. He went on, this thing lives in trees, and it eats nuts, and it has a long bushy tail. No hands went up. The minister was a bit surprised, wasn't it obvious? And finally, a little boy tentatively raised his hand and said, I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sounds an awful lot like a squirrel. Have you been there? Have you been there where you know the right answer is God is good, but it sure doesn't look like it? Because if you have, welcome to Psalm 73. And so in the rest of the time that we've got together, I want to explore what this psalm has to teach us about fighting for faith in seasons of doubt. For such seasons will come to us all if we set out on the path of apprenticeship to Jesus, in one way or another. And so in particular, I want to try and show you three things. First, the cause of Asaph's doubt. Second, the cure of Asaph's doubt. And third, the conclusion of Asaph's doubt. And then I just want to try and draw out a few practical points of application to help us in our own times of despondency. So first, the cause of Asaph's doubt. Listen again, verses 2 and 3. If you've got it open uh, in front of you, do look with me. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's the cause of Asaph's doubt? Envying the wicked. Now, to put it in more colloquial terms, we might say... uh, Casting jealous glances at those who live as if God doesn't exist. Look at them, Asaph says. 
they're fit and healthy, they have attractive partners, they drive nice cars, they live in big houses, they go on exotic foreign holidays, their businesses are booming, they're the talk of the town, they've got friends in high places, they're confident, they're self-assured, whatever they want, they get, whatever they touch turns to gold, they're, they're not in the regular people when you board an aeroplane who are kind of, you know, the gypsies, tramps and thieves who go on last. They're the platinum elite plus gold diamond people. The ones who have made it in life. The people who are worth having on the aeroplane. And then the nadir, the, the nadir of the psalm comes in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. You know what he's saying, don't you? He's saying, sin seems to pay pretty well. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this part of the psalm in the message. He says, what's going on here? He's got out to lunch. Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. Do you ever have moments where you think, my life would be a whole lot easier if I wasn't a follower of Jesus? Be honest. I do. What's the use of faithfulness? Asaph asks. Where does it get me? Following Jesus can feel like hard work sometimes. After all, Jesus says that unless we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, we cannot be his disciple. (coughs) Excuse me. The way of Jesus is the way of surrender and self-sacrifice. To name Jesus as our king means to relinquish the throne of our hearts and submit to him in everything. It's to say that we're not our own. It's to allow him to direct and to teach and instruct every aspect of our lives. It's to stop deciding what's good and bad for ourselves and yielding to his definition of what's good and bad. It's to embrace being at odds with the values of the world. It's to say that there are ways of life that are simply incompatible with life in the kingdom of God. A different sexual ethic, for instance, than sex is just play for grown-ups, which is what's all around us. Isn't being a believer restrictive? Couldn't, couldn't I be having more fun without Jesus? They're the kind of doubts that's going on in Asaph's mind, in Psalm 73. Yet there's an even more profound cause of Asaph's despondency than, and it's this. In looking to the prosperity of the wicked, he's taken his eyes off God. Again, Eugene Peterson draws this out for us superbly. He says, no doubt about it, God is good. Good to good people, good to the good-hearted. But I nearly missed it, missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. 
We fall into despondency and doubt when we take our eyes off of God. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Jesus walking on the water. The disciples in the boat, absolutely terrified. They think he's a ghost. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. So Jesus says, come on then. So Peter, one foot, then the other, gets out of the boat. And he walks on water. I know what you're going to say, he sank. Yeah, he sank. But first he walked. How many of you have ever walked on water? Yeah. Give Peter a break, okay? But... What was it that caused him to sink? Anyone know? He took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the water. And what did Jesus say to him after pulling him up out of the water? You of little faith, why did you doubt? The root cause of doubt is taking our eyes off of Jesus. And so let's move on to the second part of this psalm, the cure of Asaph's doubt. Now, this isn't real complicated, so I bet you can probably guess the cure of Asaph's doubt. So if the cause is taking your eyes off of Jesus, just hazard a wild guess here what the cure might be. putting your eyes on Jesus. Look together with me at verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. What's he saying? He's saying, none of it made any sense to me until I came into God's presence. And only there did I see the bigger picture. The question then is this, what was it about entering God's presence in the sanctuary that made the penny drop for Asaph? And I think the answer is blindingly simple, and it's this. God's presence is the very thing that these well-to-do non-believers don't have. And don't want. In effect, he's saying, sure, these non-believers might be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But what's that to me when I get you? Jesus says, whoever wants to be my follower must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so my question to you is, is he contradicting himself? Well, there's a moment in the Gospels after Jesus says that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. When Peter leads the disciples in turning around and saying, but we've given up everything for you. 
Now, you might think that Jesus would commend their attitude of self-denial. Oh, Peter, fantastic. Yeah, top marks. It's not quite what he says. Instead, he says, no one ever sacrifices anything for me that I don't pay back a hundredfold in this life and in the world to come. Is it a sacrifice to give up tin so that you can have gold? I don't think so. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my holy heroes, explains this paradox superbly. Uh, Yes, there are real sacrifices to be made, but they are always outweighed. He calls it costly grace. He says such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives the man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of our God's. Let me try and explain what he's saying. He's saying, yes, following Jesus is difficult because it means submitting to his kingship. It means following, not leading. It means being a servant, not the master. It means giving up our pretensions of authority. It means calling sin, sin, and allowing him to weed it out of our hearts and out of our lives. It means living in obedience to his commands, not picking and choosing which ones we like, which ones are agreeable to us, which ones we'd rather forget he said altogether. But, on the other hand, following Jesus is easy because it's Jesus we're following. The king we serve serves us. The one to whom we submit is the one who loves us and gave himself for us. The master whose word we obey is the author of life, whose will for us is just our very best. Is that a sacrifice? I don't think it's a sacrifice. And that's the point. When we focus on the costs, the challenges, the pains, the difficulties of a life devoted to God, doubts will inevitably rise in our minds. So don't focus on the costs. Focus on Jesus. Now, I I need reminding of this as much as anyone, several times a day. Uh, And there's a verse from Psalm 105 that... uh, I want to be my life first, and just I keep coming back to it again and again and again. And it's simply this. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. This isn't easy. It's a constant fight. 
because we've got to train the eyes of our hearts to keep looking at Jesus, to keep looking at his strength, to keep treasuring all that he is for us. It says that the beautiful old hymn says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's the cure. And so let's move on to the conclusion of Asaph's doubt. Let's listen to the way that Asaph's doubts find their resolution. Uh, Verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my, fr- uh, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's he saying? He's saying, you're all I want. There are times when I feel very weak and I sink into despondency, but when I do, I remind myself of who you are, and I choose once again to trust in you. Now, I've uh, quoted the esteemed theologian Sir Mix a lot before in this church, and I'll do it again. I like big butts, and I cannot lie. And verse 26 is one of the biggest butts in the Bible. It's enormous. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God. Saints, treasure those words. Learn to speak them to yourself. When you look at a situation and it looks absolutely hopeless, say, but God. Yes, there will be times when you feel overwhelmed, when, you, when worshipping God seems pretty pointless, when you wonder whether it's all real or not. And Asaph shows us what to do when that happens. Fight back. Choose faith. Choose to trust who God says he is. Choose to trust who you've known God to be on brighter days. Say to your discouraged heart, but God... Jesus says that Satan's been a liar from the beginning. It's his stock in trade. He takes our discouragements and he says to us, this is it. This is as good as it gets, folks. Just give in. What's the point trying to fight it? Well, don't believe him. Believe the promises of God instead. Don't just look at the storm. Look at the one who calms the storm. Don't just look at the grave. Look at the one who walks out of graves. Now, I don't think there's a Bible. I don't think the Bible says that there's anything inherently sinful about feelings of doubt and despondency and being lost at sea. That happens. But I think the Bible does say that there is something sinful about throwing up our hands and saying, I surrender. Yeah, it's all hopeless. It's pointless. What's the point? God wants us to fight. Take up the weapon of the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and fight. 
David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it starkly when he said, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. Now, to be clear, he's not saying that there aren't other factors involved, physical, genetic, etc. What he's saying is that we have to wage war on our doubts, not just passively throw up our hands and surrender, not just wave the white flag when the first whisper of Satan comes to us. When doubts say it doesn't pay to be a Christian, we, like Asaph, have to remind ourselves, verse 23, yet I am always with you. Psalm 73 shows Asaph working through his doubts with God. And where does he end up? With God. Listen again to the last couple of verses. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Did you catch that contrast between being far and being near? The good that believers get that non-believers don't is God. Yes, worshipping God can feel difficult at times. Yes, we can look enviously at the lives of non-believers and wonder, what's the point of holiness? Yet the bottom line is this, God is enough. And it was the process of doubting, but doubting in relationship, in conversation with God, that has led Asaph to that point. And so let me just try and draw out a couple of uh, practical applications for us. First, and this is really important, I want you to see that it's okay not to be okay. Can you see that from Psalm 73? Two people can. Praise the Lord. Okay. It's okay not to be okay. But be not okay with God. Asaph doesn't cover up his emotions. He doesn't do the classic British thing and say, I'm fine when life's falling apart. You know what? There are, there are lots of really good things about being British. That is not one of them. May God unpick that in us. He tells it like it is. He tells God he's struggling to make sense of life. He tells God the truth about the darkness of envy that's inside himself. He tells God that he's struggling to make sense of it. And God can see. So why mock him by saying, I'm fine, God. Great. It's all good. Thank you. Asaph has a conversational relationship with God in which he can process his questions. That's how God wants us to relate to him too. In the cut and thrust of a real relationship. So, do you have doubts about God? Do you have doubts about the goodness of the life to which he calls us? If you do, then 
Talk to him about it. It's not rocket science. Second, fight for your joy in God. David Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation of the Christian faith. He's not wrong, is he? Crotchety, sour-faced, complaining, grumbling, gossipy people aren't exactly a compelling advertisement for the kingdom of God. Is that a fair, a fair point? Yet perhaps we all need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves whether we are those crotchety, sour-faced, complaining, grumbly, gossipy people. It's often said that the medium is the message. Well, friends, we are the medium that God's chosen. (laughs) That's what he's called us to be. So the question is, what kind of message is being communicated through us? But remember, joy in God must be contended for. We must learn to pick up the promises of God and wield them as weapons against the lies of the enemy. And when you look at your circumstances and it seems hopeless and you're tempted to despair, do you battle with your own heart to put God back in the equation? But God, yes, I've just lost my job and I don't know quite what the future holds, but God. Yes, this is a really difficult time in our relationship at the moment, and I don't quite know how to fix it, but God. Yes, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, and I have no idea how far it's spread, how severe it is, but God. I wonder if any of you saw the programs about the the Colosseum on the BBC lately. I'm a bit of a history nerd, so I was watching it. One of the episodes was about a Christian martyr called Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, He was one of the many Christians thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And there's a wonderfully moving part as he's beneath ground, waiting to be dragged out, where he just keeps quoting the words of Psalm 23 to himself. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the amazing thing in that story of Ignatius of Antioch is that he didn't fight the lions. He fought his own unbelief. And he fought it with every fiber of his being. And then he just passively, peacefully let the lions do their worst. But the incredible thing was that there were 50,000 spectators baying for blood who had never seen a man die so at peace. And nothing did more to spread the gospel of Jesus in the city of Rome 
than watching that man get peacefully torn apart by lions because he battled his unbelief. Now, most of us are probably not going to get thrown to lions. Praise the Lord for that. But there are going to be battles that you face. And like Ignatius of Antioch, you need to find promises of God to cling on to in those moments. John Piper says, if Satan drops a bomb on your peace and you don't make ready for war, people are going to wonder whose side you're on. So preach to yourself. Take up the word of God and speak it to your own heart. Speak it to yourself until you believe it. Let others speak it to you. Let others in this church preach the good news to you until you believe it. Learn to say, but God, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you for putting Psalm 73 in our Bibles. Yes, our Bibles are longer because it's there, but what a treasure, what a gift. I wouldn't want a Bible without it. Thank you for showing us that it's okay to doubt. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to feel overwhelmed. It's okay to to ask why and what's it all for. But that you want us to do that in relationship with you. And so we pray, strengthen our resolve not to give in to those feelings of despondency, of doubt, but to do battle against our doubts by taking hold of your promises. Lord, when seasons of doubt come, as as they always will, teach us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. When our friends or our family members or our brothers and sisters here in this church are going through those seasons, Lord, may we speak your promises to them and encourage them. And when those seasons happen to us, may we be open and ready to hear them encouraging us. And Lord, there are people here this morning who are in those seasons of doubt and despondency right now. So come by your Holy Spirit and minister to them especially. Lord, I don't know what their questions are, but you do. Meet with them. Speak into their hearts and lives and strengthen them. Work in us that we may truly say with Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.